0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. And today, chapters 13, 14, and 15, from the Scarlet Pimpernel. And now, chapter 13. The few words which Marguerite Blakeney had managed to read on the half-scorched piece of paper seemed literally to be the words of fate. Start myself tomorrow. This she had read quite distinctly. Then came a blur caused by the smoke of the candle, which obliterated the next few words. But, right at the bottom, there was another sentence, which was now standing clearly and distinctly, like letters of fire, before her mental vision. "'If you wish to speak with me again, I shall be in the supper-room at one o'clock precisely.' The whole was signed with the hastily scrawled little device, a tiny star-shaped flower which had become so familiar to her. One o'clock, precisely. It was now close upon eleven. The last minuet was being danced, with Sir Andrew Foulkes and beautiful Lady Blakeney leading the couples through its delicate and intricate figures. Close upon eleven. The hands of the handsome Louis XV clock upon its Ormolu bracket seemed to move along with maddening rapidity. Two hours more, and her fate and that of Armand would be sealed. In two hours— she must make up her mind whether she will keep the knowledge so cunningly gained to herself and leave her brother to his fate or whether she will willfully betray a brave man whose life was devoted to his fellow men who was noble, generous and above all, unsuspecting. It seemed a horrible thing to do but then there was Armand. Armand too was noble and brave. Armand too was unsuspecting and Armand loved her would have willingly trusted his life in her hands, and now, when she could save him from death, she hesitated. Oh, it was monstrous! Her brother's kind, gentle face, so full of love for her, seemed to be looking reproachfully at her. "'You might have saved me, Margot,' he seemed to say to her. "'And you chose the life of a stranger, a man you do not know, whom you have never seen, and preferred that he should be safe.' whilst you set me to the guillotine. All these conflicting thoughts raged through Marguerite's brain, while, with a smile upon her lips, she glided through the graceful mazes of the minuet. She noted, with that acute sense of hers, that she had succeeded in completely allaying Sir Andrew's fears. Her self-control had been absolutely perfect. She was a finer actress at this moment, and throughout the whole of this minuet, than she had ever been upon the boards of the Commedia Francaise, but then, a beloved brother's life had not depended upon her histrionic powers. She was too clever to overdo her part, and made no further allusions to the supposed billet d'oeuvre which had caused Sir Andrew Foulkes such an agonizing five minutes. She watched his anxiety melting away under her sunny smile, and soon perceived that, whatever doubt may have crossed his mind at the moment, she had, by the time the last bars of the minuet had been played, "'succeeded in completely dispelling it. "'He never realized "'in what a fever of excitement she was, "'what effort it cost her "'to keep up a constant ripple "'of banal conversation. "'When the minuet was over, "'she asked Sir Andrew "'to take her into the next room. "'I have promised to go down "'to the supper with His Royal Highness,' "'she said, "'but before we part, "'tell me. "'Am I forgiven?' "'Forgiven?' "'Yes. "'Confess,' "'I gave you a fright just now, but remember, I am not an Englishwoman, and I do not look upon the exchanging of billets d'oeuvre as a crime, and I vow I'll not tell my little Suzanne. But now tell me, shall I welcome you at my water-party on Wednesday?' "'I am not sure, Lady Blakeney,' he replied evasively. "'I may have to leave London to-morrow.' "'I would not do that if I were you,' she said earnestly. Then, seeing the anxious look once more reappearing in his eyes, she added gaily, "'No one can throw a ball better than you can, Sir Andrew. We should so miss you on the bowling green.' He had led her across the room, to one beyond, where already His Royal Highness was waiting for the beautiful Lady Blakeney. "'Madame, supper awaits us,' said the Prince, offering his arm to Marguerite, "'and I am full of hope. The goddess' fortune is brown so persistently on me at hazard.' that I look with confidence for the smiles of the goddess of beauty. "'Your highness has been unfortunate at the card-tables?' asked Marguerite, as she took the prince's arm. "'Aye, most unfortunate. Blakeney, not content with being the richest among my father's subjects, has also the most outrageous luck. "'By the way, where is that inimitable wit? I vow, madam, that this life would be but a dreary desert without your smiles and his sallies.' We'll return with chapter 14 right after the sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now, Chapter 14, One O'Clock Precisely. One O'Clock Precisely. Supper had been extremely gay. All those present declared that never had Lady Blakeney been more adorable, nor that damned idiot, Sir Percy, more amusing... "'His Royal Highness had laughed "'until the tears streamed down his cheeks "'at Blakeney's foolish yet funny repartees. "'His dog reverse, "'We seek him here, we seek him there, etc., "'was sung to the tune of "'Ho, merry Britons!' "'And to the accompaniment of glasses "'knocked loudly against the table. "'Lord Grenville, moreover, "'had a most perfect cook. "'Some wags asserted that he was a scion "'of the old French noblesse, "'who, having lost his fortune, "'had come to seek it in the cuisine "'of the foreign office.' Marguerite Blakeney was in her most brilliant mood, and surely not a soul in that crowded supper-room had even an inkling of the terrible struggle which was raging within her heart. The clock was ticking so mercilessly on. It was long past midnight, and even the Prince of Wales was thinking of leaving the supper-table. Within the next half-hour the destinies of two brave men would be pitted against one another, the dearly beloved brother and he, the unknown hero." Marguerite had not even tried to see Chauvelin during this last hour. She knew that his keen, fox-like eyes would terrify her at once, and incline the balance of her decision towards Armand. Whilst she did not see him, there still lingered in her heart of hearts a vague, undefined hope that something would occur, something big, enormous, epoch-making, which would shift from her young, weak shoulders this terrible burden of responsibility, of having to choose between two such cruel alternatives.' "'but the minutes ticked on with that dull monotony "'which they invariably seemed to assume "'when our very nerves ache with their incessant ticking. "'After supper, dancing was resumed. "'His Royal Highness had left, "'and there was general talk of departing among the older guests. "'The young ones were indefatigable "'and had started on a new gavotte "'which would fill the next quarter of an hour. "'Marguerite did not feel equal to another dance. "'There is a limit to the most enduring self-control.' "'Escorted by a cabinet minister, "'she had once more found her way to the tiny boudoir, "'still the most deserted among all the rooms. "'She knew that Chauvelin must be lying in wait for her somewhere, "'ready to seize the first possible opportunity for a tête-à-tête. "'His eyes had met hers for a moment after the four-supper minuet, "'and she knew that the keen diplomatist, "'with those searching pale eyes of his, "'had divined that her work was accomplished. "'Fate had willed it so. "'Marguerite!' torn by the most terrible conflict heart of women can ever know, had resigned herself to its decrees. But Armand must be saved at any cost. He, first of all, for he was her brother, had been mother, father, friend to her ever since she, a tiny babe, had lost both her parents. To think of Armand dying a traitor's death on the guillotine was too horrible even to dwell upon. Impossible, in fact. That could never be. Never. Never. As for the stranger, the hero, well, there let fate decide. Marguerite would redeem her brother's life at the hands of the relentless enemy, and let that cunning scarlet pimpernel extricate himself after that. Perhaps, vaguely, Marguerite hoped that the daring plotter, who for so many months had baffled an army of spies, would still manage to evade Chauvelin and remain immune to the end. She thought of all this, as she sat listening to the witty discourse of the cabinet minister, who, no doubt, felt that he had found in Lady Blakeney a most perfect listener. Suddenly she saw the keen, fox-like face of Chauvelin peeping through the curtain doorway. "'Lord Vancourt, she said to the minister, "'will you do me a service?' "'I am entirely at your ladyship's service,' he replied gallantly. "'Will you see if my husband is still in the card-room, and if he is?' will you tell him that I am very tired, and would be glad to go home soon? The commands of a beautiful woman are binding on all mankind, even on cabinet ministers. Lord Pancourt prepared to obey instantly. "'I do not like to leave your ladyship alone,' he said. "'Never fear. I shall be quite safe here, and I think undisturbed. But I am really tired. You know Sir Percy will drive back to Richmond. It is a long way, and we do not hurry, get home before daybreak. Lord Fancourt had perforce to go. The moment he had disappeared, Chauvelin slipped into the room, and the next instant stood calm and impassive by her side. "'You have news for me,' he said. An icy mantle seemed to have suddenly settled around Marguerite's shoulders. Though her cheeks glowed with fire, she felt chilled and numbed. "'Oh, Armand, will you ever know the terrible sacrifice of pride, of dignity, of womanliness?' "'A devoted sister is making for your sake,' she thought. "'Nothing of importance,' she said, staring mechanically before her, "'but it might prove a clue. "'I contrived, no matter how, "'to detect Sir Andrew Fulks in the very act of burning a paper "'at one of these candles in this very room. "'That paper I succeeded in holding between my fingers "'for the space of two minutes, "'and to cast my eye upon it for that of ten seconds. "'Time enough to learn its contents?' asked Chauvelin, quietly. She nodded. Then she continued in the same even, mechanical tone of voice. "'In the corner of the paper there was a usual rough device of a small star-shaped flower. Above it I read two lines. Everything else was scorched and blackened by the flame. And what were those two lines?' Her throat seemed suddenly to have contracted. For an instant she felt that she could not speak the words which might send a brave man to his death.' "'It is lucky that the whole paper was not burned,' added Chauvelin, with dry sarcasm, "'for it might have fared ill with Armand St. Just. "'What were the two lines?' said Touyenne. "'One was, "'I start myself to-morrow,' she said quietly. "'The other, "'If you wish to speak to me, "'I shall be in the supper-room at one o'clock precisely.' "'Chauvelin looked up at the clock just above the mantelpiece. "'Then I have plenty of time.' "'He said placidly. "'What are you going to do?' she asked. "'She was pale as a statue. "'Her hands were icy cold. "'Her head and heart throbbed with the awful strain upon her nerves. "'Oh, this was cruel. "'What had she done to have deserved all this?' "'Her choice was made. "'Had she done a vile action, or one that was sublime? "'The recording angel, who writes in the Book of Gold, "'alone could give an answer. "'What are you going to do?' she repeated mechanically. "'Oh, nothing for the present. After that, it will depend.' "'On what?' "'On whom I shall see in the supper-room at one o'clock.' "'You will see the Scarlet Pimpernel, of course, but you do not know him.' "'No, but I shall presently.' "'Sir Andrew will have warned him.' "'I think not. When you parted from him after the minuet,' "'he stood and watched you for a moment or two, "'with a look which gave me to understand "'that something had happened between you. "'It was only natural, was it not? "'That I should make a shrewd guess "'as to the nature of that something. "'I thereupon engaged the young gallant "'in a long and animated conversation. "'We discussed Herr Gluck's singular success in London, "'until a lady claimed his arm for supper. "'Since then?' "'I did not lose sight of him through supper. "'When we all came upstairs again,' Lady Portarlus buttonholed him and started on the subject of pretty Mademoiselle Suzanne de Tournay. I knew he would not move until Lady Portarlis had exhausted the subject, which will not be for another quarter of an hour at least, and it is five minutes to one now. He was preparing to go, and went up to the doorway, where, drawing aside the curtain, he stood for a moment, pointing out to Marguerite the distant figure of Sir Andrew Folkes in close conversation with Lady Portarlus. "'I think,' he said, with a triumphant smile, that I may safely expect to find the person I seek in the dining-room, fair lady. There may be more than one. Whoever is there, as the clock strikes one, will be shadowed by one of my men. Of these, one, or perhaps two, or even three, will leave for France to-morrow. And one of those will be the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yes, and— I also, fair lady, will leave for France to morrow. The papers found at Dover upon the purse of Sir Andrew Foulkes speak of the neighborhood of Calais, of an inn which I know well called Le Chat Gris, of a lonely place somewhere on the coast, the Pere Blanchard's hut, which I must endeavor to find. All these places are given as the point where this meddlesome Englishman has bidden the traitor de Tournay and others to meet his emissaries. But it seems that he has decided not to send his emissaries. "'that he will start himself to-morrow. "'Now, any of these persons whom I shall see anon in the supper-room "'will be journeying to Calais, "'and I shall follow that person, "'until I have tracked him to where those fugitive aristocrats await him. "'For that person, fair lady, "'will be the man whom I have sought for, for nearly a year, "'the man whose energy has outdone me, "'whose ingenuity has baffled me, "'whose audacity has set me wondering. "'Yes, me.' Who have seen a trick or two in my time. "'The mysterious and elusive Scarlet Pimpernel. "'And Armand?' she pleaded. "'Have I ever broken my word? "'I promise you that the day the Scarlet Pimpernel and I start for France, "'I will send you that imprudent letter of his by special courier. "'More than that, I will pledge you the word of France, "'that the day I lay hands on that meddlesome Englishman, "'St. Just will be here in England.' safe in the arms of his charming sister. And with a deep and elaborate bow and another look at the clock, Chauvelin glided out of the room. It seemed to Marguerite that through all the noise, all the din of music, dancing, and laughter, she could hear his cat-like tread gliding through the vast reception rooms, that she could hear him go down the massive staircase, reach the dining room, and open the door. Fate had decided, had made her speak, and had made her do a vile and abominable thing for the sake of the brother she loved. She lay back in her chair, passive and still, seeing the figure of her relentless enemy ever present before her aching eyes. When Chauvelin reached the supper-room, it was quite deserted. It had that woe forsaken, tawdry appearance, which reminds one so much of a bald dress the morning after. Half-empty glasses littered the table. Unfolded napkins lay about. The chairs, turned towards one another in groups of twos and threes, seemed like the seats of ghosts in close conversation with one another. There were sets of two chairs, very close to one another, in the far corners of the room, which spoke of recent whispered flirtations, over cold game pie and champagne. There were sets of three and four chairs, that recalled pleasant, animated discussions over the latest scandals. There were chairs straight up in a row, that still looked starchy, critical, acid, "'like antiquated dowagers. "'There were a few isolated single chairs "'close to the table "'that spoke of Gourmand's intent "'upon the most recherche dishes, "'and others overturned on the floor "'that spoke volumes on the subject "'of my Lord Grenville's cellars. "'It was a ghost-like replica, in fact, "'of that fashionable gathering upstairs, "'a ghost that haunts every house "'where balls and good suppers are given, "'a picture drawn with white chalk "'on grey cardboard, dull and colorless now that the bright silk dresses and gorgeously embroidered coats were no longer there to fill in the foreground, and now that the candles flickered sleepily in their sockets. Chauvelin smiled benignly, and rubbing his long, thin hands together, he looked round the deserted supper-room, whence even the last flunky had retired in order to join his friends in the hall below. All was silence in the dimly lighted room, whilst the sound of the gavotte, the hum of distant talk and laughter, "'and the rumble of an occasional coach outside "'only seemed to reach this palace of the sleeping beauty "'as the murmur of some plitting spooks far away. "'It all looked so peaceful, so luxurious, and so still, "'that the keenest observer, a veritable prophet, "'could never have guessed that, at this present moment, "'that deserted supper-room was nothing but a trap "'laid for the capture of the most cunning and audacious plotter "'those stirring times had ever seen.' Chauvelin pondered and tried to peer into the immediate future. What would this man be like, whom he and the leaders of a whole revolution had sworn to bring to his death? Everything about him was weird and mysterious, his personality, which he had so cunningly concealed, the power he wielded over nineteen English gentlemen who seemed to obey his every command blindly and enthusiastically, the passionate love and submission he had roused in his little trained band, and, above all, his marvelous audacity— the boundless impudence which had caused him to beard his most implacable enemies within the very walls of Paris. No wonder that in France the sobriquet of the mysterious Englishman roused in the people a superstitious shudder. Chauvelin himself, as he gazed round the deserted room, where presently the weird hero would appear, felt a strange feeling of awe creeping all down his spine. But his plans were well laid. He felt sure that the scarlet pimpernel had not been warned, and felt equally sure that Marguerite Blakeney had not played him false. If she had, a cruel look that would have made her shudder gleamed in Chauvelin's keen, pale eyes. If she had played him a trick, Armand St. Just would suffer the extreme penalty. But no, no, of course, she had not played him false. Fortunately, the supper-room was deserted. This would make Chauvelin's task all the easier— "'when presently that unsuspected enigma "'would enter it alone. "'No one was here now,' save Chauvelin himself. "'Stay!' "'As he surveyed with a satisfied smile "'the solitude of the room, "'the cunning agent of the French government "'became aware of the peaceful, monotonous breathing "'of someone of my lord Grenville's guests, "'who, no doubt, had supped both wisely and well, "'and was enjoying a quiet sleep "'away from the din of the dancing above. "'Chauvelin looked round once more.' and there in the corner of the sofa, in the dark angle of the room, his mouth open, his eyes shut, the sweet sounds of peaceful slumbers proceeding from his nostrils, reclined the gorgeously apparelled, long-limbed husband of the cleverest woman in Europe. Chauvelin looked at him as he lay there, placid, unconscious, at peace with all the world and himself, after the best of suppers, and a smile that was almost one of pity softened for a moment the hard lines of the Frenchman's face "'and the sarcastic twinkle of his pale eyes. "'Evidently the slumberer, deep in dreamless sleep, "'would not interfere with Chauvelin's trap "'for catching that skinning scarlet pimpernel. "'Again he rubbed his hands together, "'and following the example of Sir Percy Blakeney, "'he, too, stretched himself out in the corner of another sofa, "'shut his eyes, opened his mouth, "'gave forth sounds of peaceful breathing, "'and waited. "'We'll return with Chapter 15, "'right after these sponsor messages.' AND NOW CHAPTER 15. DOUBT. Marguerite Blakeney had watched the slight, sable-clad figure of Chauvelin as he worked his way through the ballroom. Then, perforce, she had had to wait while her nerves tingled with excitement. Listlessly she sat in the small, still-deserted boudoir, looking out through the curtain doorway on the dancing couples beyond, looking at them, yet seeing nothing, hearing the music, yet conscious of naught save a feeling of expectancy, of anxious, "'weary waiting.' "'Her mind conjured up before her "'the vision of what was, "'perhaps at this very moment, "'passing downstairs. "'The half-deserted dining-room, "'the fateful hour, "'chauvelin on the watch. And "'Then, precise to the moment, "'the entrance of a man, he, "'Scarlet Pimpernel, "'the mysterious leader, "'who to Marguerite had become almost unreal, "'so strange, so weird, "'was this hidden identity.' She wished she were in the supper-room, too, at this moment, watching him as he entered. She knew that her woman's penetration would at once recognize in the stranger's face, whoever he might be, that strong individuality which belongs to a leader of men, to a hero, to the mighty, high-soaring eagle whose daring wings were becoming entangled in the ferret's trap. Womanlike, she thought of him with unmixed sadness— "'The irony of that fate seemed so cruel "'which allowed the fearless lion "'to succumb to the gnawing of a rat. "'Ah! "'Had Armand's life not been at stake!' "'Faith, "'your ladyship must have thought me very remiss,' "'said a voice suddenly, "'close to her elbow. "'I had a deal of difficulty "'in delivering your message, "'for I could not find Blakeney anywhere at first. "'Marguerite had forgotten all about her husband,' "'and her message to him. "'His very name, as spoken by Lord Fancourt, "'sounded strange and unfamiliar to her. "'So completely had she in the last five minutes "'lived her old life in the Rue de Richelieu again, "'with Armand always near her to love and protect her, "'to guard her from the many subtle intrigues "'which were forever raging in Paris in those days.' "'I did find him at last,' continued Lord Fancourt, "'and gave him your message. "'He said that he would give orders at once,' for the horses to be put to. Ah, she said, still very absently. You found my husband, and gave him my message? Yes, he was in the dining-room fast asleep. I could not manage to wake him up at first. Thank you very much, she said mechanically, trying to collect her thoughts. Oh, will your ladyship honour me with the contredance until your coach is ready? asked Lord Fancourt. Uh, no. Thank you, my lord, but— and you will forgive me. I really am too tired, and the heat in the ballroom has become oppressive. "'The conservatory is deliciously cool. Let me take you there, and then get you something. You seem ailing, Lady Blakeney.' "'I am only very tired,' she repeated wearily, as she allowed Lord Pancourt to lead her, where subdued lights and green plants lent coolness to the air. He got her a chair into which she sank, This long interval of waiting was intolerable. Why did not Chauvelin come and tell her the result of his watch? Lord Fancourt was very attentive. She scarcely heard what he said, and suddenly startled him by asking abruptly, Lord Fancourt, did you perceive who was in the dining-room just now besides Sir Percy Blakeney? Only the agent of the French government, M. Chauvelin. Monsieur Chauvelin, equally fast asleep, in another corner he said. "'Why does your ladyship ask?' "'I I know not. I—did you notice the time when you were there?' "'Ah, it must have been about five or ten minutes past one. I wonder what your ladyship is thinking about,' he added, for evidently the fair lady's thoughts were very far away, and she had not been listening to his intellectual conversation. But indeed her thoughts were not very far away. Only one story below, in this same house, in the dining-room, "'where sat Chauvelin still on the watch. "'Had he failed? "'For one instant that possibility "'rose before her as a hope, "'the hope that the scarlet pimpernel "'had been warned by Sir Andrew, "'and that Chauvelin's trap "'had failed to catch his bird. "'But that hope soon gave way to fear. "'Had he failed? "'But then, Armand! "'Lord Fancourt had given up talking "'since he found that he had no listener. "'He wanted an opportunity for slipping away.' for sitting opposite to a lady, however fair, who is evidently not heeding the most vigorous comments made for her entertainment, is not exhilarating, even to a cabinet minister. "Uh, Shall I find out if your ladyship's coach is ready? He said at last, tentatively. Oh, thank you, thank you. If you would be so kind, I fear I am but sorry company, but I am really tired, and perhaps would be best alone. She had been longing to be rid of him, for she hoped that, like the fox he so resembled, Chauvelin would be prowling round, thinking to find her alone. But Lord Fancourt went, and still Chauvelin did not come. What had happened? She felt Armand's fate trembling in the balance. She feared, now with a deadly fear, that Chauvelin had failed, and that the mysterious Scarlet Pimpernel had proved elusive once more. Then she knew that she need hope for no pity, no mercy, from him." HE HAD PRONOUNCED HIS EITHER, OR, AND NOTHING LESS WOULD CONTENT HIM. HE WAS VERY SPITEFUL, AND WOULD AFFECT THE BELIEF THAT SHE HAD WILLFULLY MISLED HIM, AND HAVING FAILED TO TRAP THE EAGLE ONCE AGAIN, HIS REVENGEFUL MIND WOULD BE CONTENT WITH the HUMBLE PREY, HER BROTHER. YET SHE HAD DONE HER BEST, HAD STRAINED EVERY NERVE FOR Armand's SAKE. SHE COULD NOT BEAR TO THINK THAT ALL HAD FAILED. SHE COULD NOT SIT STILL. SHE WANTED TO GO AND HEAR THE WORST AT ONCE. "'She wondered even that Chauvelin had not come yet "'to vent his wrath and satire upon her. "'Lord Grenville himself came presently "'to tell her that her coach was ready "'and that Sir Percy was already waiting for her, "'ribbons in hand. "'Marguerite said farewell to her distinguished host. "'Many of her friends stopped her "'as she crossed the rooms to talk to her "'and exchange pleasant au revoirs. "'The minister only took final leave "'of the beautiful Lady Blakely "'on the top of the stairs.' Below on the landing, a veritable army of gallant gentlemen were waiting to bid good bye to the Queen of Beauty and Fashion. Whilst outside, under the massive portico, Sir Percy's magnificent bays were impatiently pawing the ground. At the top of the stairs, just after she had taken final leave of her host, she suddenly saw Chauvelin. He was coming up the stairs slowly and rubbing his thin hands very softly together. There was a curious look on his mobile face, partly amused and wholly puzzled and as his keen eyes met Marguerite's, they became strangely sarcastic. "'Monsieur Chauvelin,' she said, as he stopped on top of the stairs, bowing elaborately before her. "'My coach is outside. May I claim your arm?' As gallant as ever, he offered her his arm and led her downstairs. The crowd was very great. Some of the minister's guests were departing. Others were leaning against the banisters, watching the throngs that filed up and down the wide staircase. Chauvelin, she said at last desperately, I must know what has happened. What has happened, dear lady? he said with affected surprise. Where? When? You are torturing me, Chauvelin. I have helped you to night. Surely I have the right to know. What happened in the dining room at one o'clock just now? She spoke in a whisper, trusting that in the general hubbub of the crowd her words would remain unheeded by all save the man at her side. "'Quiet and peace reigned supreme, fair lady. "'At that hour I was asleep in the corner of one sofa "'and Sir Percy Blakeney in another. "'Nobody came into the room at all?' "'Nobody.' "'Then we have failed, you and I.' "'Yes, we have failed, perhaps.' "'But Armand,' she pleaded. "'Ah, Armand's saying just chances hang on a thread. "'Pray heaven, dear lady, that that thread may not snap.' Chauvelin, I worked for you, sincerely, earnestly. Remember. I remember my promise, he said quietly, the day that the scarlet pimpernel and I meet on French soil, St. Just will be in the arms of his charming sister. Which means that a brave man's blood will be on my hands, she said, with a shudder. His blood, or that of your brother? Surely at the present moment, you must hope, as I do, that the enigmatical Scarlet Pimpernel will start for Calais today. I am only conscious of one hope, "'Citoyen. and that is that Satan, your master, will have need of you elsewhere before the sun rises today. You flatter me, "'Citoyen.' She had detained him for a while, midway down the stairs, trying to get at the thoughts which lay behind that thin, fox like mask. But Chauvelin remained urbane, sarcastic, mysterious. "'not a line betrayed to the poor, anxious woman "'whether she need fear "'or whether she dared to hope. "'Downstairs on the landing "'she was soon surrounded. "'Lady Blakeney never stepped from any house "'into her coach without an escort "'of fluttering human moths "'around the dazzling light of her beauty. "'But before she finally turned away "'from Chauvelin, she held out a tiny hand "'to him with that pretty gesture "'of childish appeal which was so essentially her own. "'Give me some hope, "'my little Chauvelin.' She pleaded, with perfect gallantry. He bowed over the tiny hand, which looked so dainty and white through the delicately transparent black lace mitten, and kissing the tips of the rosy fingers, "Pray heaven that the thread may not snap," he repeated, with his enigmatic smile. And stepping aside, he allowed the moths to flutter more closely round the candle, and the brilliant throng of the jeunesse dorée, eagerly attentive to Lady Blakeney's every movement, hid the keen fox-like face from her view. Thanks for joining us for the Scarlet Pimpernel, chapters 13 through 15. We'll return next Sunday night with more of the story. We do appreciate reviews, so if you have a chance, please do send us a review. We appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. We'll return next. This is 1001 Greatest Love Stories. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.